Your word is woman. Can I have the definition, please? There's no bigger sign of insecurity. A woman is, is, is what a she's, woman. What she's. In your ideas and your values and your positions, if you're saying, look, they're off limits. The definition of woman is woman. Hmm? You can't oppose them and you can't joke about them. Today, I sit down with Seth Dillon, CEO of the satire website, Babylon B. We're accused of punching down, but I think we're punching up. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Why? I just want to know the definition of woman. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest-rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Seth Dillon, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Pleasure to be here. Why don't we start here? Um, You you guys recently, you guys do these wonderful video video pieces of comedy on on YouTube and so forth. You recently did one, you know, Spelling Bee contestant asks uh, the definition of a woman. Your word is woman. Can I have the definition, please? Why don't you ask Judge One that question? Can I have the definition of woman, please? No. Why why is this so funny, right? (laughs) Why is it funny? Well, I mean, to some extent, humor is subjective. You know, uh, uh, different people, depending on their worldview and how it's shaped, will find different things funny. Um, I think this, though, is funny. And by the way, a lot of people on the left certainly won't find this funny. They're the butt of the joke here. But I think the reason it's funny is because it's it's highlighting an absurdity, like an extreme example of absurdity. And when you kind of play it out, what what a sketch like this allows you to do is kind of take the absurd the absurd position that someone holds and then put it into a practical context, like an everyday context, and a context where it's exposed for how absurd it really is. Uh, And this, you know, this idea that we can't define what a woman is, you gotta a Supreme Court nominee asked the question, what is a woman? Uh, and her, her retort is, uh, uh, I'm not a biologist. Don't ask me. How would I know? She is a woman. She is a woman, and she's kicking the, kicking the can down the road to, to someone else. I think that's incredibly absurd that, we're, that we've lost sight of what the meaning of these you know, f- kind of fundamental words is. You know, just, just to comment on su- Supreme Court justice saying they're not, she's not going to define, right, what is a woman. But I, I actually think that was kind of an astute political move of sorts, right? Because if she had, she could get, she would, there's, there's no way to answer the question. I think this is the thing that was bizarre about it. There's no way for her to answer the question that doesn't piss a whole bunch of people off. Right. Right. <laughs> Even the way she answered it, though, wasn't really safe for who she's 
trying to keep happy mm-hmm. uh, because she's, she said, I'm not a biologist. Well, what's a biologist got to say about it? You know, as far as gender ideology goes, your, your sex, the bio, but your biological makeup has nothing to do with your gender at all. So she was asked, what is a woman, a gender term? Uh, and, she, and she went back to biology. But that's what, you know, the conservative side will say is that your gender is tied to your sex. So she actually gave a, a nod to the conservative position on that one. I want to get at you, you know, you went out at one point and you decided to, to buy the Babylon Bee. And so, like, where do you come from? How did you get interested in doing this? I mean, it's buying a Christian comedy website isn't necessarily like the obvious massive investment, you know. Where, tell me about this. No, not obvious probably for most people. Although when I, when I did make an offer on it, they, he was uh, Adam who started Adam Ford was already under contract to sell to someone else. So there was intense interest in the bee because Mm -hmm. the bees, you know, at the time in 2018 when I took it over was skyrocketing in terms of its Mm -hmm. uh, popularity, its growth. You know, it was getting millions of eyeballs on the website. So it was becoming, it was filling a void and becoming something popular among people on the right and and in the Christian community. So, um, I mean, just my background though, I was was raised in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. Um, So I grew up in the church and I started seeing B headlines really early on because they were circulating a lot in church circles, like on Facebook and Twitter, you know, this, these church jokes, jokes about worship pastors wearing skinny jeans and stuff like that. So um, silly inside jokes that like people in the church would know. And a lot of it was self-deprecating humor, which I thought was really refreshing, you know, that these, these Christians are running this comedy site, they're making fun of themselves. So it was appealing to me on a personal level because of my background, but also because you know, I love, I love humor, I love satire, I love how effective it is. And I thought to myself, you know, with my, with my knowledge of media and marketing um, and great content like this, you know, maybe I could help take this thing to the next level and, and really grow it. So um, that's been my mission for the last, you know, four or five years since I got involved. How's it played out? Incredibly well. Now, I, there's, there's been uh, setbacks, I would say, um, roadblocks, but I mean, the business has, you know, We've grown it dramatically. We have, uh, we're doing tens of millions of page views now, monthly. We generate revenue from a variety of sources. When it first started, it was a WordPress blog that drove most of its traffic through Facebook and had you know Google ads on the website. Um, but now we have subscriptions, we have a store, we sell books. Um, we also have ad revenue that we generate from direct sponsorships with our sponsors or you know the, the regular ad networks. So um, there's a diverse stream of revenue now. It's a real business, it really is. Well, okay, so so let's quickly talk a little bit about some of these setbacks along the way, because you know, many of us, you know, at the Epoch Times, we were in the situation. We had across our properties forty million followers, mm-hmm. you know, on Facebook, and they're worth very, very little right now. Right. And so, how did you bounce back from this? And this, I mean, this is just one platform, but right. as everybody I think knows, there, there's been multiple setbacks when it comes to platforms. Well, um, we managed to offset a lot of the losses in traffic that we've got from being off of Twitter now and being throttled severely on Facebook. And we're not alone in that, obviously. You guys are experiencing that too. Um, We've offset a lot of it. We would be much further along than we are if we still had that kind of reach. We were doing at one point um, just over a year ago, a couple of years ago, on average, I think it was two years ago, back in 2020, we were doing about 90,000 shares per article we wrote on average. And that was because some of our articles would go viral. We did one about how a motorcyclist identifies as a bicyclist and set a world record. 
right, that got 8 million shares. Um, if we still had that kind of virality and that kind of reach that we used to have before we were being throttled so badly, um, we'd be a lot further along as a business. So we've offset some of those losses and generated some direct traffic. We're trying to own our audience more, building up our subscription platform and our newsletter list and all of that. Um, but it's still a hit in terms of you know where we should be versus where we actually are. Sure, but if, from what I can tell, you know, at least by some measures, you're you're doing better than the Onion. Yeah, which yeah. was you know I, I don't know it was like the definitive you know satire site at some, at one point. Anyway. Yeah, I think ultimately what it comes down to is the content itself is what people want. You know, and people are seeking it out even if they can't get it on Twitter anymore. They're still finding a way to get to our website and share it amongst their friends. I think that comedy that pushes back and is willing to make jokes that you're not supposed to make is really refreshing right now. And you and you see it all the time with these comedians, um, you know, the Dave Chappelle's of the world who are trying they're trying to cancel them. They're more popular than ever. And I think that's probably part of the problem. The reason The Onion is falling in popularity and we're rising in popularity is because the comedian or the satirist or the humorist's job is really not to promote a narrative, but whatever the prevailing narrative of the day is, is to take shots at it and try to poke holes in it and tear it down and subvert it. So the comedians who do that are going to be the ones that audiences are really hungry for. And the ones who are just, you know, propping up the narrative, um, and promoting it and preaching to their audiences rather than trying to make them laugh and make fun of the powers that be. Um, I think that we're in that position where we're on the rise for that reason. So you're, you're taking the role of the court jester. Yes, trying to. We're accused of punching down, but I think we're punching up. Okay, okay, explain that to me. Explain that to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so punching down um, is a derogatory term to describe jokes uh, made at the expense of people who have less power than you. So it'd be somebody who's beneath you um, on this like power chart, right? <laughs> and uh, the idea is that there's, you know, there's marginalized and oppressed people and there's privileged people and some, wherever you fall in that spectrum, if you make it vertical, you know, there's people who are underneath you or, or people who are above you. But what they're trying to do, uh, and they're even baking this into their terms of service at the, at the media, you know, the big tech companies, but in the media, what they're trying to do is hold comedians accountable uh, from making jokes at the expense of people they shouldn't, who have less power than them. And I, I think it's the, I, the most absurd thing in the world to try to put yourself in the mindset of when you're writing a joke um, and stopping yourself and thinking to yourself, you know what, I can't joke about those people. They're beneath me. You know, like that's just like a ridiculous condescending thought to have. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be withholding from joking about someone because you consider them beneath you. That's an arrogant thing to say. I think we should be able to joke about each other indiscriminately. Um, and so, you know, this idea of you know, punching down, I think the truth is, this is a projection thing from the left. The truth is that, you know, comedians like us who are, like I said, you know, taking shots at or trying to poke holes in the popular narrative are in fact punching up, even though they'll say we're making fun of a marginalized community when we make a joke like we did where we said that Rachel Levine was named our man of the year instead of woman of the year, which is what USA Today had, had said. When we make a joke like that, they consider that punching down because we're, we're joking about someone who's in a marginal or a protected category that you're not supposed to make fun of. Well, this is a, a white male high-ranking government official, for one thing, um, and this is a, an idea that's being foisted on us from the top down. Um, and so it's a, it's a popular narrative that's going around in all of the, you know, the most powerful institutions in our, in our nation, 
to make fun of that is can't be punching down. It can't be. When that's the prevailing narrative, when that's what they want you to talk about and promote, the, the job of the jester is to make fun of that. We have a responsibility to make fun of that. So to be told that we're punching down, we're punching back or we're punching up. We're not punching down. Well, so I think the the... The, the crux of the idea here, at least this is how I understand it. Like, basically, it's like, you don't want to hurt people. Why, why are you hurting people's feelings? Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, jokes are offensive. You know, jokes are offensive. I think it's a healthy exercise. I think it's a real sign of not just, you know, um, mental, but also spiritual immaturity to, uh, to be incapable and unwilling to examine yourself and laugh at yourself. The people who are sitting in the audience at a comedy show and the comedian pokes fun at them for being bald or fat or whatever it is that he's making a joke about, it may be at their expense, their appearance even, you know, like something that, that, that's really offensive. And they laugh, you know, typically they'll laugh. A healthy person laughs in that scenario. They're saying, look, you know, I'm being picked on here, but it's all in good fun, it's good natured. Um, the intent is just to make people laugh, it's not to be cruel. Um, and I think there's a couple of ways of looking at that too. You know, when we talk about, for example, uh, the reason we're in Twitter jail, the, the gender stuff and the, and the joke that we made that got us put in Twitter jail, you could easily make an argument that it's cruel not to push back on these things. Um, that bad ideas need to be ridiculed because they have harmful effects in our society, especially on young people who are impressionable, they don't have the philosophical foundation or the theological framework to try to combat these ideas um, that are really detrimental to them personally if they ingest them and, and try to live them out in their lives. And so, you know, pushing back on that, ridiculing bad ideas that can have harmful effects in society, you can call it cruel because it hurts somebody's feelings, but I think that it's actually a, uh, a safeguard against insanity, which is harmful. So. Okay, why is, and of course it's this uh, Rachel Levine, Man of the Year, uh, satire that, that that you're in Twitter jail for, you know why why is this the hill to die on, right? Because you, you basically you said we are not going to remove that. All you'd have to do, right, if I understand it correctly and how Twitter works, all you'd have to do is remove that. I could delete tweet, it right now while we're sitting and, here. Yeah, and they would and yeah. they, they would they would reactivate your account. Why not? You know. Well, I don't want to die on any hills if I can avoid it. Um, why is this the hill to die on? Well, I, so, well, for one thing, I would I would ask a question in response when you know Twitter when Twitter says you know well all you have to do is delete this and you can get back on the platform. Well, why are you making us delete it? You know, if you have a problem with the joke, if you don't if you don't like the joke, you think that it violates your hateful conduct policy. Even I would dispute that it does. They could take it down themselves. They require us to acknowledge that we engaged in hateful conduct and delete it. And you're, you're agreeing to that when you delete it. It's not just a matter of, oh, delete the joke. They're saying, when you delete this joke, you are acknowledging that you engaged in hateful conduct. That's why we're not doing it. Um, and I also just think that it's a, uh, I, I don't think that it's necessary for us to do that. You know, they could take it down themselves. But I also don't, I also think that it's an issue of, uh, of great societal and philosophical importance that you be able to, to speak the truth. Now, this is satire, right? So when I say speak the truth, that confuses people sometimes. Was our joke true? Well, no, it's a, it's a fabricated story. We don't actually name anyone man of the year. But there's an underlying truth that we're getting at, that we're trying to speak. And I think it's a very basic truth. There's men and there's women. And they can't go back and forth and choose which one they are. You are who God made you to be. Um, you know, a lot of us would say that that's a fundamental truth. 
not just from a theological framework, but also biologically, like reality. This is reality. We should be able to say what's true. And so if we're getting to the point where someone's trying to say that we have, we have to insist that two and two make five and not four, and this idea that there is no joking about it, um, you either have to be compelled to say what we want you to say or remain silent and censor yourself. Uh, when we've reached that point, that's where I say, that's a hill worth dying on. I don't want to die on a hill, but if I have to pick one, I think that's one worth dying on. So we ran into each other at an event not, not too long ago, and you were giving a presentation, and you had some, again, really kind of funny observations that you pulled from the B headlines that were actually satire, but then it actually ended up coming true. One of the, the more sort of banal ones was pants sales plummet as everyone working from home. Yeah. <laughs> COVID joke. Yeah. COVID jokes. So another one of these, I mean, I, 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 uh, Progressive Church announces new drag queen Bible story hour. Yeah. You know, and that came true. That's that's an example of one that came true, you know, where there, we, we make the joke. And then later on, there's a real headline where there is a church doing a drag story hour for children, by the way, not adults for children. Well, I don't know why they do a story hour for adults. There's this weird thing happening where uh, it's becoming difficult for us to make jokes um, that are so absurd they don't come true because we're kind of on this fast track towards insanity, I would say. You know, I quoted at the beginning of my talk that you were at, I, I quoted Chesterton who said that the world has become too absurd to be satirized. He said that in 1911, um, but you know, if he was here today and seeing the kind of stuff that we're seeing today, I can only imagine what he would say. I mean, that's an understatement. Uh, if it was applicable back then, it's certainly much more applicable today. And this is the, the, the what I think it validates the, the comedian who's making these jokes, you know, this happens a lot with The Simpsons, South Park, um, you know, they'll, they'll, make, they'll kind of foretell the future by offering up these absurd scenarios um, that actually come to fruition. And that's real. It's not that it's not that satire is too close to reality. It's that reality is bumping up against satire is, I think, the problem there. And so, you know, we're, we're struggling to stay ahead of it and do things that are funnier than what people in real life are actually doing. You've been quite vocal, actually, on this specific issue, the, you know, drags, drag queen story hour, for example, and, and you know, sexualization of children. Why, why is this so important? I would ask, why isn't it important to more people? I think it should be important to people. I think, again, transplant Chesterton from 1911 when he said that to today and the kind of stuff that we're exposing children to and trying to defend it. There's so many people defending it. This is, this is an interesting thing, and it's, it's a question that I would ask. You know, People ask me, why is this the hill to die on? Why is this the hill they want to die on? You know, I don't think parents are happy about this stuff in general. Um, I don't think they want their kids exposed to this stuff. Um, there's there's a, a moral obligation you have as a parent to insulate your children from things that would corrupt their innocence to the extent that you can, right? You certainly don't want to be exposing them to it or indoctrinating them or trying to normalize behavior that, you know, is lewd or indecent or something like that. So um, I would wonder why there are so many people who are willing to make it their hill to die on that they want to push this, you know. Equal rights is one thing. You'd have a conversation about equal rights under the law. But to engage kids and to do things that would sexualize or groom or otherwise corrupt innocent children uh, and make that something that you're really pushing for aggressively is just mind-blowing to me. That there's so many people willing to do that, that they're defending it. Um, why is that their hill to die on? How does a drag queen do anything but distract from story time? 
Like, why not just have, why not have, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do something that's supposed to be educational or interesting for children, you know, have an astronaut come and read a story about space, you know, or have like somebody who's, you know, somebody somebody that's a a healthy role model for children, you know, a, a drag queen is someone who, um, who dresses up as as someone of the opposite sex or gender. Uh, and dances provocatively for tips, for cash tips, like a stripper. You know, like these are, this is not appropriate content for children. I think there's plenty of ways to stir up the imagination of children. But the, but the Drag Queen Story Hour people are pretty, uh, pretty open about their, uh, their motivations and their purpose. You know, their mission is to, is to stir up the queer imagination in children. Uh, and I just don't see how that's a, a necessary or good component of educating and entertaining children in like preschool, kindergarten, and early grade school ages. Um, and I don't, I don't understand why there's not more resistance to it. There's a kind of, there's a curious sort of logic and woke ideology, this is, my, this is my observation, where, you know, once things get to a certain, when, once a topic gets enough coverage, it gets to a certain point, there's sort of, there's no going back from it, and there's just kind of a doubling down, and I've seen this mm -hmm. across multiple let's see topics but this this perhaps is the most recent one yeah. yeah i think that happens you've been um you know someone that's been doing a lot of um let's say showcasing of of uh people very deep in into woke ideology teachers mm -hmm. notably and so forth uh, libs of tiktok yeah. um you you decided to come out and support the efforts of this account, Libs of TikTok. Tell me, tell me about this and why. And is this the same? Is this you know same motivations as the B? I guess it's not because, this, or maybe it is yet another shrewd business decision by uh, Seth Dillon. Well, I think that you know it's it's different. It's not. It's certainly not. There's there's been some misreporting that you know the Babylon Bee invested in Libs of TikTok or something. The Babylon Bee has nothing to do with it. You know. Um, any involvement that I have for funding or, or, or an investment that I make or something as an individual has nothing to do with the Babylon Bee, even though I, I run the Babylon Bee. Um, so the Bee did not buy or run, is not running Libs of TikTok. It's not satire. Um, it's a totally different enterprise. But you know what Libs of TikTok is doing is, I think, important uh, journalistic work that a lot of journalists are neglecting. And that's the story. You know, there's, there's real content out there that's being posted by real people. It's not made up. This isn't fabricated. These are people who are going online and bragging about what they're teaching their students, you know, in the classroom, or people who are exposing what's actually being taught in the classroom by taking pictures of these assignments that are being sent home. You know, we, we did one recently. There were um, kindergartners. Kindergartners were sent home with a masturbation assignment. Kindergartners. I think that's newsworthy. You know, parents need to understand what's going on in the schools. And, you know, Libs of TikTok is exposing this stuff um, and a lot of people are grateful for it, saying that you know they're doing a they're doing a service, uh, and of course they're also uh, being attacked for it for uh, targeting um, you know oppressed and marginalized people for harassment and whatever. But it's like, look, we don't care about the sexual orientation or gender identity of the person who's doing this stuff. It's the behavior that's that's morally objectionable um, that's being highlighted, regardless of who's engaged in it. But yeah, Libs of TikTok is, is doing an excellent job at exposing a lot of that stuff, uh, and, which I think is valuable and important, um, but it's, it's effective, and that's the reason that they're trying to shut it down. I remember uh, you know, years and years ago now, I was at a kind of week-long training with a bunch of other people, and one night we had a costume party. And one of the people 
It was a very secular crowd, okay? One of the people dressed up as some kind of a goofy, but in a kind of cruel way, pastor, Christian, mm. and everyone thought it was incredibly funny, mm. right? But, but I, I, I found myself thinking, but, but what if this was a group of Christians, right? Mm. Would, would this actually be that funny? You mentioned earlier how you know different groupings will have to find different. Is there are there limits to comedy? Like even on, on the Babylon Bee, there's there's certain things that you you know that secular people on the left might find incredibly funny that you probably wouldn't do, right? There's tons of examples. I mentioned you know The Simpsons earlier, South Park, Family Guy, shows like that. You know that are um, satirical and funny and don't hesitate at all to make fun of Christians. Uh, the Reverend in The Simpsons is, uh, is, a, is an idiot. He's immoral. Um, he's just a terrible person. Um, you know, that's kind of the, well, the dad in the show is too. Um, but, but, you know, it's, there's no hesitation there to go after those targets. And I think generally um, Christians in the right have been pretty tolerant of jokes at their expense. Um, you know, and this is where the word, you know, tolerance gets so distorted. You know, to tolerate something is to, like, bear with it even though you don't like it, right? Like, you're, you're willing to allow it to happen. You're not putting a stop to it. But it, you're not affirming it either. You're not loving it. You're not necessarily thinking that it's good. But you're tolerating it. You're bearing with it. That's come to mean something very different now. And there's no tolerance on the left for jokes about their sacred cows. Um, so th there needs to be... Uh, a two-way street where the jokes are allowed to flow in both directions um, because they're very vicious in their humor about conservatives, about Christians, um, uh, and they're, you know, they're willing to dish it, but they can't take it. Um, and so not that comedy should be cruel, but we should all be willing to say, you know, sometimes there are jokes like Bill Maher when he came to the defense of the bee, you know, he said, uh, he said, you know, there's this Christian satire site. He's like, He's like, what even is that? And he's like, I thought the religion itself was satire, you know? And he got a lot of laughs from his crowd, you know, calling Christianity satire. That was a funny joke. It was his best joke of that segment. Um, and it's at our expense, but it's still funny, and it's funny for his audience. Uh, he's entitled to make jokes like that. But the other side should be too, you know? We should be willing to joke at each other and laugh at ourselves. Well, and, and, and he did dish some out. Yeah. I mean, in the other direction, which wasn't yeah. taken very well. No, it wasn't. Well, that was his more serious commentary. His joke was at our expense, and then he gave really serious commentary at theirs, um, you know, saying that, you know, this free speech thing, it's, it's, it's a big issue. You know, he's, he's standing by it. But there need to be people on the left who are willing to say, look, you can, you can joke about us. You should be able to joke about us. There's no bigger sign of insecurity and uh, insecurity in your ideas and your values and your positions if you're saying look you you can't they're off limits you can't joke about them you can't we can't you can't oppose them and you can't joke about them um you know i think they would be better served to say bring it on you know make fun of us if you want to let's see how it stands up to mockery and ridicule so you know i think a lot of people out there know that you guys the, the three of you the three top guys at the at the b sat down with Elon Musk. Um, very, very interesting interview. It, it was, it's very interesting to hear his commentary about wokeness. And it's very, I mean, he, it just, it, it fits so well into what, what we're discussing. But he, he said something like, wokeness is a, a shield that meal, mean people use to be cruel, covered in false virtue. That's, mm -hmm. that's not exact words, but, but yeah. something very close to that. And he had a, he had a few, just kind of one-liners like this which 
I thought, you know, because everyone's kind of struggling to, to, to kind of define mm-hmm. this. So is, do, you, do you think this is why he's, he's become, he became interested in the bee is because of your ability to satirize what is ostensibly not allowed? Yeah, I, honestly, I do. I mean, he, so he said, um, wokeness came up in the, in the context of him talking about how it's, a, uh, it's one of the most serious threats we face as a society yeah. right now. And I asked him, you know, he, he said it was harmful. And I, and, I, and I asked him, you know, what, what do you think is so harmful about it? And he said, it's divisive, it's exclusionary, it's hateful. It gives mean people an, an excuse to be cruel um, while armored in false virtue. Um, and, and he asked us what we thought. And, I, and we were all, all just nodding along like, <laughs> yes, yeah, he gets it. You know, he understands how important this is. I mean, that's the reason that he's interested in, in taking over Twitter is because wokeness is a lot of the driving force behind um, compelling certain speech, pressuring people to censor themselves. Otherwise, they'll be canceled and deplatformed. Um, he, sees, he sees free speech as being vital for the health of a society. And if, you, if, the, if the modern public square, the town square, the modern digital age, which is Twitter, Facebook, you know, these, these big tech platforms, um, if you don't have it on those platforms, then you just don't have it in, this, in the modern digital world. Um, and so, you know, he's... He's willing to say, look, this is going to cost me a lot of money. It may never make me a dime, um, but I'm in a position. I, I consider myself a free speech absolutist. You should be able to say objectionable things. I think that's good for society. And I'm in a position to step in and do something about this and take over this platform and make sure that it adheres to at least basic, the basic idea that free speech should exist and be allowed to flourish, even if offensive things are said. Um, you know, he's willing to do that even if it costs him a lot of money and doesn't make him a cent. That's what he says anyway. And I think that's very, I think that's very, very admirable. So it was, it was really cool to sit with him and kind of hear what he thinks about those things uh, and why he sees it as being so important. But in terms of the value of the bee in that conversation, we mock these bad ideas for what they are. And I think he appreciates that. Yeah, no, I, I, I took, made a note here and I can't remember whether it's you saying it or him saying it, that wokeness wants to make humor illegal. <laughs> I think he said that. Yeah. 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 It does. Whether they use the law itself, I mean, what they what they what they've done so far, like what we see with Twitter for example, you know, tw- let's let's go to Twitter because that's where we got uh we've been locked out recently. Um, you know, Twitter's mission statement in their own words is to provide a platform for free expression without barriers, right? That's their mission. That's why they exist, a platform for free expression without barriers. To this day. To this day, that's on their website. And so if you go on their hateful conduct policy, which is the one that we apparently violated, they have that statement. They, re- they reiterate that mission statement at the top of the hateful conduct policy. And then you scroll a little further down the page and they say, yeah, but you're not allowed to like dead name or misgender and all these things. And so they have their wokeness, their gender ideology, their radical progressive gender ideology is written into their terms so that you either have to affirm it or refrain from speaking altogether. Yet, just in the paragraph above that, there are a platform for free expression with no barriers. So, you know, it's, it's a double-think thing. On the one hand, they're saying we're a platform for free expression. On the other hand, they're saying, but yeah, but not this expression. Um, so, you know, but, but what they're trying to do is bake it into the terms so that they can use euphemisms like content moderation or misinformation or something like that. They can just say, oh, well, we're just engaging in content moderation to keep hate, hate speech and uh, indecent content off our, our platform. Well, no, you're enforcing 
woke ideology as being the only thing that you can express or defend on this platform. And you're doing it in these roundabout ways. So um, whether it's illegal or not, it's not permissible to, to uh, push up against it in the public square. And that's where, you know, Musk isn't going to the legislature and trying to change the laws. He's trying to take over the town square itself and say, this is a privately run company, but someone who likes, who loves and, and values free speech needs to be the one running it. So let, let's talk about misinformation a little bit and fact checking. So I, I remember, you know, you pointed out this, this piece to me, which I actually couldn't believe this was true, but it turned out to be true. Um, you know, CNN purchases industrial sized washing machine to spin news before publication. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, a lot of people took this seriously when it required no, they didn't. <laughs> numerous, numerous fact checks. I don't believe uh, that anyone took that seriously. So why, why, why do you think it needed to why did you think it needed to be flagged for misinformation and fact check? Well, I asked Snopes that question because Snopes is the one who originally fact checked it. And they were the, at the time a fact checking partner with Facebook. And, um, and Facebook was threatening to kick us off because of that joke. I asked them, I said, why, why was this one? Why did, you, why did you fact check this one? And they said it's because, well, they didn't say this one in particular. They just said, in general, the reason that we fact check articles is because we get a lot of reports from people who are asking us, is this true? Or a lot of people reporting it as, oh, this is fake, this is false. And I asked for an example, I said, show me one person who emailed you and said, is this true? Did this really happen? Are they spinning the news inside a washing machine and then reporting it once it comes out because it's been spun on a spin cycle? Was there one person? And then they stopped replying to me. So. Uh, I don't believe that anyone actually thought that was true. I'm not exactly sure why they picked the targets they picked because they could pick some jokes that were like a little more believable. That one's just kind of absurd on its face. It's obviously absurdist humor. So, uh, you know, picking ones that would be a little more believable, I think, would help their cause because they just look, abs they just look ridiculous themselves by fact-checking these jokes. <laughs> Giving a joke like that a truth rating is just silly. But, you know, fact-checking has become, you know, this sort of... Uh... I don't know, become ubiquitous. This is from 2018, I think. You know, it's four years later. Yeah. You know, fact-checking is alive and well, alive and kicking and, and decreeing what's, what's true and what's false. In many cases, egregiously false things are marked as true and vice versa. Yep. Um, it, it's almost poetic that this would be one of the articles that, <laughs> that is fact-checked. Well, and there's even, it's funny, I think the one of the more... Uh, comical ones was this one where we did a joke about how Trump had claimed to have done more for Christianity than Jesus. And that was just a joke about Trump's ego because he says yeah. these outlandish things. Yeah. And that one got fact-checked and rated false. But then you fast forward a couple of years and he actually goes on a radio show and says that he's done more for Christianity and religion in general than any other person in history. So he basically said what we had jokingly said that he said and it got rated false and then he actually goes out and says it. So it, it's just, you know, it's funny how this stuff works. The, 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 fact that the, the fact that there are fact checkers, though, checking jokes and rating satire false um, rather than, you know, rather than just saying, you know, this is a joke. Um, the issue that we've had with the fact checkers is that if they had just gone to our pieces and said, hey, this is a viral piece of content, you may have seen it going around, this is satire. Laugh. It's satire. 
that wouldn't have been detrimental to our business. You know, the, the problem was that they were out there saying, oh, these guys have managed to pull off these tricks before. They're duping you. They're, they're, they're presenting you with fake news. They're pretending to be satirists, but they're really um, deceivers and, and it's a hub for disinformation. And so Snopes was doing that kind of stuff. The media was doing that kind of stuff. The New York Times called us a far-right misinformation site that traffics in misinformation under the guise of satire. You know, so ominous what we're doing. Um, and that's totally baseless. They're just making up motives for what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, judging, you know, what's in our hearts. You know, they never even reached out to us to ask us a question. What was your intent with this, by the way? And they didn't need to. I mean, we're obviously set up as a satire publication. We call ourselves fake news you can trust. So, you know, there's no, uh, uh, there's no question in their mind that we are legitimately satire. But they use the fact-checking as an excuse to try to vilify us as being someone who's out there trying to mislead the public. And that's just, that's just ridiculous. The, the defense of satire that's believable is jokes need to be believable to be funny. They have to be tethered to the truth. They have to be rooted in reality to be funny. And if reality is catching up to your jokes and it's indistinguishable from your jokes, that's an indictment of reality, not the satirist. Mm-hmm. Well, and something just struck me about the, the, the piece about you know, Trump having done you know, more for Christianity than Jesus. Yeah. I, I expect you know, for a brief moment you became uh, uh, incredibly popular uh, across the board, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, with yeah, a joke uh, like that, yeah. We reached the other side. Well, people on the left thought that was true, by the way. That was one of those ones that they thought was true. And it was believable. It was a believable headline. And the proof that it's believable is that he actually went and said it a couple years later. I think that validates the joke. It's, it was a good joke. <laughs> where, do you see, where do you see things going? I mean, it, Babylon B has, in a way, almost become at the same time a kind of activist site where I think people have described it that way to me, at least. Uh, not just, it's, you're no longer a satirist, purely a satire site. Like, mm-hmm. do, you, do you see yourself that way? Well, that was never the goal, you know? The goal, the goal with the B was to make people laugh and to make them think a little bit, you know? Um, to be subversive the way that satire is supposed to be subversive, um, to poke holes in the popular narrative, like I said before. You know, that was always the goal. The goal wasn't to, um, to be on the front lines of some kind of big battle. That, that fight came to us just because of the, you know, we couldn't even make this stuff up. We didn't expect that our jokes would have a truth rating. Um, we didn't expect that so many of them would come true. We didn't expect that we would be, uh, um, you know, slandered and, and defamed as like uh, uh, doing hate speech under the guise of satire. Um, but here we are, you know, we, we, we became popular and then we get all these attacks and then we have to respond to them. And so we've become this example. I think one of the reasons why we're so prominent um, as an example of, you know, censorship and, and, our, and, our, and people want to hear from us and, and, and we, we talk to the media so much is because it's just so ridiculous that this is the approach to satire. These are jokes. This is comedy. And, you know, the way that they've handled our jokes, the way that they've handled our comedy, is it's so over the top. It's so absurd and ridiculous that, that we're finding ourselves in a position where we're defending ourselves against this stuff uh, when all we're trying to do is, is be funny on the Internet, make jokes on the Internet. We did not expect and didn't ask for this fight where we're kind of like 
um, battling for the preservation of freedom and the restoration of sanity. But here we are, and, and you know, we think it's a fight worth fighting. Um, rationality itself is under attack. It's not just free speech. There are people who have abandoned rationality on purpose and are trying to get you to go along with agreeing with them that two and two make five. And, and I said before that I think that that's a hill worth dying on. It's something that's worth not just joking about, mocking them. We'll mock them all day long while we can. Um, but it's worth getting serious about it too. I believe the Babylon Bee submitted an amicus brief to one of the lawsuits against the, um, you know, basically big tech. I can't remember which one it was right now. Mm -hmm. I guess I wanted to, to get your, how you think these platforms should be treated. The problem is, is as Musk recognizes, is that these platforms have become the town square of the, of the digital age, right? So this is where the vast majority of public discourse takes place. And it's not just between private citizens, but between like government officials and private citizens. And so if the First Amendment means anything, if we do have a right to express ourselves freely, then it has to apply to the public square, wherever that is. Um, and if that's not in the physical town square anymore, it's in the digital town square, then it needs to be preserved there. So the question is, well, how do we accomplish that if these are privately owned companies that can do whatever they want? Because that's what we're told, right? They're privately owned and they can do whatever they want. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. There's lots of private companies. You know, the common carrier doctrine is interesting because it's an example of uh, government regulation or involvement in privately owned businesses like telecommunications companies, for example, or railroads or utilities, um, that doesn't that doesn't bump up against First Amendment issues where the companies have their you know their rights aren't being infringed upon. There's an interest, a public interest, in making sure that everybody's accommodated on those platforms. Um, you can't lose access to your phone line because of who you voted for, you know, uh, or what race you are, or what your religion is. So preventing discrimination has been in the interest of the government for a long time. So there's been a lot of laws around preventing it. I don't think it's unreasonable to, to ask or require that we have something change that preserves speech on these platforms by preventing the kind of viewpoint discrimination that we're seeing. This is not merely uh, innocuous content moderation where they're saying, you know, uh, this is lewd or indecent content. We're taking it down because it's, you know, it's not appropriate in the public square. The way that, you know, sex or nudity in the in the in public would be indecent. It's viewpoint discrimination um, under the guise of benign content moderation. And so I think that's abundantly clear. I think a lot of people see that, and the question is, what's the solution to that? So common carrier doctrine being applied is one a possible solution. Um, it could just be a situation where you where you tweak Section 230 a little bit. You know, Section 230 is, the, uh, is in the, the Communications um, uh, Decency Act where you've got immunity f given to these platforms for the moderation that they, that they do. If you condition that immunity on something like political, like viewpoint neutrality, then you're getting somewhere. You know, give them the immunity. It's a benefit. You're not punishing them in any way. You just, you reserve that benefit for people who actually refuse to discriminate and allow for open speech on their platforms. And so we have been supportive of some of the, the state laws that have been passed that have tried to aim at um, making sure that viewpoint discrimination is not allowed. And so, you know, you, you mentioned Elon Musk is a free speech absolutist. Are you a free speech absolutist? I guess it depends on what you mean by that. <laughs> you know, you could, you could mean different things by it. I think, you know, what, what Musk is going for, okay, I've seen him elaborate on that a couple of times, and he's talking about lawful speech. Um, 
And I would agree with that, you know, because there's certain things that you shouldn't be permitted to say, right? Death threats, for example, um, inciting violence uh, purposefully, you know, th things like that, that, that would not be considered lawful in the town square either. Um, the First Amendment is not, is, doesn't protect all speech in the sense that you can just say, uh, you know, so, uh, certain things that are harmful like that. Showed, so, showed fire in a crowded theater. That kind of stuff, yeah. <laughs> So if, when, when you talk about absolutists, it's like, well, what, to what extreme do you take it? I think Musk's position is that it sh we should honor uh, what's lawful. Um, and so you would still end up with a lot of nasty stuff that's lawful on these platforms. And the question is, well, what do you do with that? And I think that there's plenty of room for these platforms to moderate beyond what's merely lawful to keep the platform somewhat clean. For example, lewd and indecent content that would be lawful but is inappropriate on the platform. Um, I think there's, there's space for that. It's really an issue of viewpoint discrimination. That's what it comes down to. If, if, if we're talking about, am I, am I for the right of people who disagree with me to say things that I don't like? Yes, I'm, I am for that. And uh, I think that's constitutionally protected. And I don't just think that, it's, that the law should compel that. I think that private companies should have an interest themselves in, in allowing for that, especially if their mission statement is to provide for a platform of free expression without barriers. If that's your mission, honor it. Final thought? I think the most important role that we can all play in this is to refuse to censor ourselves. Um, you know, they rely so much on the pressure to, uh, that's applied um, the fear of cancellation, the fear of losing your job, the fear of getting canceled over your tweets, you know, whatever. Um, they apply that pressure to try to get you to, to stay in the box and not go outside into areas where you're not supposed to say things that are going to make them uncomfortable or hurt their feelings. And the best way to subvert that, the best way to push back on that is to speak boldly, to speak the truth boldly and not censor yourself. I think that the way that I describe it is you're doing the tyrant's work for him when you do that. And so... I think that they would have a lot less power than they do have if more people were willing to do that. And we have been. We've been very bold in that. They've tried to kick us off and, and tell us that we engaged in hateful conduct and we're refusing to delete our tweet and go along with it. And hopefully we embolden others to do the same. Well, Seth Dillon, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining Seth Dillon, CEO of Babylon Bee, and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick. Mm -hmm.